context makes a huge difference. Like what setting are you putting it in, right? If you put it in this setting, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and it's it's this kind of pastoral, yeah, pastoral, apologetic um, defense of the faith. Ever since Jesus was born, there has been great debate on who he is, and sometimes this led into conflict. You're talking about Yeshua, you know, that brown guy who's a refugee, uh, big socialist. And some people used him for their political agendas. The most famous person in the world by far said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I said, no. He said, who's more famous? I said, Jesus Christ. Others used him to make sense of their experience. Was Jesus gay? Either way, there's a clear question being asked. Who is Jesus? The question that our generation of young people on the campus are asking today is, who art thou, Lord? Who is Jesus? You're listening to Young and Sanctified. I'm your host, Justin. And every episode, I talk to some amazing people hoping to cultivate childlike faith and seek Christ-centered knowledge. So grab your coffee and a notebook or whatever you need and join me as we grow together. Today's guest is Dr. Adam Wynn, Associate Professor of Christian Studies at University of Mary Hardin Baylor in Texas. We will be talking about his book, Reading Mark's Christology Under Caesar, Jesus, the Messiah, and Roman Imperial Ideology. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Wynn, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So you wrote this fantastic book that will be in the show description for the listeners to get a copy, hopefully, because they should. It's a wonderful book on the on the Gospel of Mark. So as we talk today about Mark's Christology, that's what we're going to be drawing from. So in general, what is the setting of the Gospel of Mark? What are some things that the listeners need to know before we dive into Mark's Christology? Yeah. Well, first of all, th- thank you for, for your interest in the book, and thank you for saying it's fantastic. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the the setting of Mark's gospel, uh, the context of Mark's gospel, first I should say it's debated, right? There's, there's debate over the setting of Mark's gospel, um, and the debate generally revolves around, I mean, two, two broad um, areas, one, or issues. One would be that Mark is written in, in Rome, right? The Mark's written in the Roman West, Mm-hmm. Um, in Rome or near Rome, um, and this is the traditional. This is the traditional position. This is the unanimous position, or virtually an unanimous position of the early church. Um, and I, I would say it still remains probably the, the the majority of scholars. Although it's 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 you know it's, it, there's a lot that go a different direction. Um, and the and then the other would be that it's written in the Roman East, right? The other position is mm-hmm. written in the Roman East. Um, it's in maybe in Syria, maybe even in Galilee, um, and and so those are your two primary uh, provenances. And then there's the issue of date, right? When is it? When is it written? And then that's split between: is it written? Mo- most would have it somewhere between 65 and probably 72, 73 AD. Mm. Um, the real issue is: is it written before the temple's destroyed, or is it written after the temple's destroyed? Okay, and so. Um, and then you can put those pieces together in different ways. Is it written uh, pre-70 in the East, or is it written post-70 in the East? Is it written pre-70 in Rome, or is it written post-70 in Rome? So those are kind of your main options uh, and what scholars are arguing for. Um, and uh, you know, in my book, I 
talk about this. And if you want a more thorough discussion of what you get in the book and my dissertation, which is also published, um, you can read about 50 pages where this is debated. And that, that, that conversation and that I, I mean, that was a long time ago. Um, mm. it needs to be updated because there's new arguments going both directions, but all that to say, so I just want to give a, a lay the groundwork to say it's debated. And those are kind of your options where I land and what I argue for is that Mark is written in Rome. I think, I think the strongest evidence puts Mark in Rome. Um, and I think Mark is written post 70, right? I think Mark mm-hmm. is written, um, after the destruction of the temple, but not long after the destruction of the temple. Um, so 70, 71, 72, right in there. Um, and so that's the setting that I explore. If Mark is written, written post 70, um, and in Rome, then I ask the question, what's going on in Rome post 70? What's happening there? Um, and, uh, most people are unfamiliar with what's happening at Rome at that time. Um, and what's interesting is in the year, uh, it, it, in the year of like six, between 68 and 69, um, a lot is happening in Rome. A lot is going on, uh, the, the most people are unfamiliar with mm-hmm. and Nero dies in 68, right? Nero is, uh, basically he's, he's forced to commit suicide by his Praetorian guard. Um, and kind of the, and, and, and even before he's forced to commit suicide, there's already been a revolt in some of the provinces. So Rome is, is, is kind of, uh, it's having some, um, stability issues. Right. And then, mm-hmm. then he dies and a new, uh, general is declared emperor, right? Declared emperor, but he lasts like three months. And then another, mm-hmm. uh, another figure is declared emperor who actually is a friend of the first guy who betrayed him and he was declared emperor. Um, and then he doesn't last very long. He lasts three ish months. And then another is declared emperor. Um, and so you, you call the historians call this the year of the four emperors and Rome between 68 and 69, this whole year where you have one emperor after another emperor is a year of turmoil. It's a year of civil war. Um, war is even brought into the city of Rome itself. And finally, the fourth person, the fourth emperor in that time frame, is a man named Vespasian. Right. Mm-hmm. And Vespasian is the he comes out on top in the end. He's the fourth and um, and he's going to be emperor for the next 10 years. He starts a new dynasty. Um, the interesting thing about Vespasian is Vespasian is actually a general who Nero sent to put down the Jewish revol- revolt in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have this Jewish revolt that starts in Jerusalem in 66. And Nero was a general uh, who, who, who Nero is not very happy with. I think he falls asleep during one of Nero's performances or something. And he gets sent off to the far east of, to put down this Jewish revolt. Right. Hmm. And so while this and so he's putting down the Jewish revolt very success, successfully, actually. And, and while this is happening, Nero dies. Right. And then he puts a pin in it. He, he says, OK, I'm going to put pause on this. I don't know what I should do now. And as he th- sees things unfold, he decides, oh, well, I have really powerful armies. I have, uh, my legions are pretty powerful. And he throws his name in the ring, right? Uh, as, as, as a potential uh, future leader of Rome. And he actually wins, right? He comes out on top. And so what happens is he becomes his new emperor. Now, now he's a, he beget, he's a, he's representing a brand new family. Um, he is a, ple- he comes from the plebeian ranks, right? So he's the first emperor to come from the plebeian ranks. Hmm. Um, so, and, and he recognizes, well, I've just come, I've it, it just, I've, I've just, uh, been the fourth emperor in, in a year. So he understands there's some stability issues. He understands it's necessary to kind of consolidate his power. Um, he understands it's important to justify his power. And so, um, we see in the historical records that he, there's a significant amount of propaganda that begins to be churned out about the Spasian, right? Um, hmm. that he was actually the, the, the gods, uh, or the, there were portents and prophecies and, and uh, prophets that foretold 
uh, signs that foretold his coming, that he would rule over the the earth, all kinds of random things like um, you know, eagle, see, people seeing eagle, uh, eagles in the sky battling, and then another eagle comes in from the east and and destroy, kills the eagle that is flying. Right, so he's the eagle that comes in from the east because that's where he was when he was declared emperor. Mm. Um, even the, the the historian Josephus actually is known for pr- predicting to Vespasian himself after Vespasian captures him that he'll one day be his emperor. Right, so uh, Josephus actually makes a prophecy, and you have uh, uh, an oracle in Alexandria that prophesies or, or, or indicates he'll one day be the emperor. So all these different things. Um, he also uh, gives food to a starving Roman population. Right, Rome has ten days of grain left when Vespasian becomes emperor, and Vespasian quickly sends food to Rome, distributes a dole of grain to, to all the people who are in need. Um, so Vespasian does this. Uh, Vespasian also presents himself as one who has destroyed the, um, he, he's, he, well, eventually his son Titus is going to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. So this is part of his propaganda. The gods have vindicated him by giving him this victory, right? His power is sanctioned by the gods. He actually heals two people in Alexandria, right? Um, and this is seen as divine, you know, it's put forward as divine. The gods are with him, right? The gods yeah. are with him. So he's able to heal people. Um, and what's, I think most, all of that's important, all of this propaganda that Vespasian's putting out there that, that promotes this new dynasty, all of it's really important. But the thing that I think is most important, and I make a case for this, is in three historians, we have this claim that um, the Jews were misguided in their expectation for a, from a, for a world ruler to rise from the East, right? This idea that the Jews expected, a, a, a and, and Jews would call it a Messiah. These historians don't do that. But Jews expected a world ruler to rise from the East, um, and this was a Jewish conviction. It led to their revolt. It's why they revolted. They believed this would happen. And all three of these historians say, no, they were wrong. They read their scriptures wrong. What really is the case is their scriptures pointed to Vespasian, right? They pointed to Vespasian, who is truly the fulfillment of these oracles in their scriptures, and they misread them, and Vespasian is truly the fulfillment of those oracles. There is no Jewish Messiah. There is none of that. It's just Vespasian, and he arose in the East, and now he rules over the world, and so they pointed to Vespasian, right? And Hmm. so you essentially have this claim, and I would say the most likely source of this claim is Vespasian and his propaganda, right? Vespasian is the one who puts out this message that he is the fulfillment of Jewish messianic hope. And in a way, you can see it as kind of a warning shot, right? You're, you're warning them. You're like, you know, the last time you revolted because you misread your scriptures, um, we came down and we put you down hard, right? I mean, we, mm-hmm. we, we ended your temple and we ended your city and essentially saying, don't misread them again, right? I, mm-hmm. I'm the one who fulfilled all that. There's no reason for you to continue to revolt. Um, and, and, and so when you look at all of that, right, you look at all of that information, um, First of all, I think Vespasian presents himself as a very impressive and powerful figure. He's got a very impressive resume. Um, powerful commander of legions, uh, heals people supernaturally, provides mm-hmm. food for starving people, is the choice of the gods, fulfills prophecies, importance and oracles, and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's impressive. And then you got to ask yourself, okay, how would this impact Christians living in Rome, right? Mm. How would it impact Christians living there? Um, you know, probably Jewish Christians living in Rome aren't too persuaded by something like this, right? I mean, they, they've 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 known um, uh, boastful, arrogant rulers in the past that make these bold claims, and they're not going to look at Vespasian and say, "Oh yeah, you probably are the fulfillment of Jewish scripture." I mean, they, they know their scriptures better than that. 
but <laughs> but if you were a, if you were a Gentile Christian, right? If you were a a, a a a new believer and you just come to this faith, and there's already pressures on you from your family and your friends, uh, you know, that think you've done something stupid, right? Why 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 have you abandoned the gods and why have you abandoned your traditions and why have you abandoned your family to follow this crucified peasant from across the world? Why would you do that? Mm. Um, mm. Vespasian would be a nice uh, piece of evidence for your those trying to persuade you, right? They say, "Well, look, you, you're wrong. You're, 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 the the scriptures you think that you are following are really fulfilled in Vespasian, right? Mm-hmm. He's the true fulfillment of those scriptures. You've missed the mark. Why would you continue to follow this dead Messiah uh, who isn't around? And and when you have this powerful emperor who's leading us in a new direction and bringing us into this glorious new peaceful world and a new Augustus and all of that kind of language, right? Yeah. And so I imagine that that this propaganda of Vespasian infringes on Christian claims. It, it leads to um, kind of could lead to cr- a crisis of faith for a number of a number of uh, a number of Christians in Rome, uh, Gentile mm-hmm. Christians, young Christians, right? And also it can impact mission, right? I mean, if the Christians are trying to engage in mission and persuade Romans about Jesus as the fulfillment of these scriptures, etc., well. There's now a new answer to the question. They, they could say, no, this is really Vespasian. And so Christians, I think, need to come up with a response. They need to come mm. up with some way of responding to, I- encouraging uh, their believers that they're on the right side, right? Uh, d- defending their position that Jesus is truly Son of God, right? Jesus, Jesus is truly Messiah. Jesus is truly ruler of the world. And that they got it right. Don't don't abandon your faith and go to this, this new option. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also for an answer for, for mission, right? You, you, you have to have an answer to this new propaganda as you're trying to persuade others about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the setting, right? That's the, that's the setting I try and reconstruct. I think this is, it's clear this, all the, all the Vespasian stuff, that's clearly going on in Rome um, mm-hmm. at this time. And I don't think it's implausible to think that this would put pressure on Christians and 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 lead to some doubts and 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 that that would require a Christian response. And mm. so what I try and do is say, okay, if all that's going on, what if we read Mark's gospel in light of that setting, right? If 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 that's the setting, how if if Mark was written in that setting, how Mark might Mark be read as a response to that reality, mm. right? Um, and that's and that's kind of where I I launch from, and then I yeah. begin to read Mark from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, and from that context, you you bring up two main Christological themes that I found interesting because in other commentaries on Mark, they only focus on one. Like um, Mark Strauss has the the theme of the suffering servant as like yeah. that's the main theme of the book of Mark, Jesus in the book of Mark. So I like yours that you you offer too power and suffering, and so I found like and and the way you broke it up too. Can you talk about it those two themes a little bit? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's long been recognized. Um, I mean, if you go back over the last hundred years of Mark and scholarship, um, that when you read, especially the first part of Mark, right, read the first half of Mark's gospel, mm-hmm. it, the focus is Jesus's power, right? The focus is Jesus's um, healings, uh, power over nature, power to to multiply food. Um, it, he he just is presented as a remarkably powerful figure right mm. and the first half we're talking about the first half up until you know the end of chapter eight of mark's gospel 16 chapters first half uh, end of eight um very little reference to jesus's death 
right? I mean, nothing explicit at all, just kind of little little hints here and there. Uh, but overall, he's popular. Uh, people love him. Uh, mm-hmm. He has some opposition, but it's relatively minor compared to the latter half of the gospel. Um, and he just is this impressive figure of power, right? Mm. And then you get to the 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 end of chapter eight and you get the Caesarea Philippi narrative. And this is where um, Jesus is declared uh, by Peter to be the, the Christ. Um, and then Jesus introduces his suffering and death, right? He predicts it. And then it continues to be predicted. Um, and then all of a sudden, the, the, it, there seems to be a shift in tone in the narrative, right? Um, miracles are far less present, right? I mean, there's there's maybe a mm-hmm. couple more after that from eight, from eight or the end of eight all the way to 16. Um, there is much more talk about suffering. There's much more talk about death. There's much more talk about service and sacrifice, and it's much less about uh, uh, a power and Jesus's popularity among the people. And then obviously as he moves forward and he gets to Jerusalem, tensions rise, there's more opposition, um, and then it finally culminates in his, 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 his death in Jerusalem. Um, and so people have recognized this, that this first half is dominated by power. The second half is seems to be dominated by suffering. Um, and what do you do with that? And scholars have done different things. Some have, some have said, well, we're going to take the power uh, lens and we're going to try and understand the whole thing through the power lens. And so they try and bend uh, the, the suffering and kind of make it somehow subordinate or lessen it and make it subordinate to the power. Um, and to be fair, this is a, t- a tact I took in my dissertation, right? This is a, a, a direction I went. Um, Robert Gundry goes this way in his commentary on Mark. Um, and and if you go back to like Rudolf Boltmann, he's going to emphasize Jesus as this powerful figure. Mm-hmm. Um, but but really, and this you mentioned Strauss, and really most other uh, commentators on Mark's gospel, probably after I don't know, I want to say seventies and and beyond, really go the opposite direction, right? They really go the opposite way, and they look at the um, the last half is what really Mark wants to say about Jesus, right? Mark wants to say Jesus is a suffering figure. He's not a powerful figure. He's a suffering figure who gives his life as a ransom for many. Um, he mm-hmm. is the he is the suffering servant. Um, he is the one abandoned by God, et cetera, et cetera, all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and so that's really been the emphasis and the focus on Mark's Christology, I'd say, for the last 40 years-ish. Uh, uh, um, yeah. and, uh, and so... What do you do with those two things? That's, that's where they come from. So what do you do with them? Some have tried to, so the people have emphasized uh, suffering have tried to then, some have even argued, gone to the extreme that the second half of Mark is correcting the first half of Mark, right? That, that it's, it's trying to uh, rebuke people who see Jesus as this figure of power and it's trying to then bend this powerful Jesus under the suffering Jesus. I think that's such a hard case to make because it's clear Mark affirms Jesus as a very powerful figure. I mean, the first half is is affirmed, and the powerful Jesus doesn't disappear in the second half, right? He's still there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, what I try and do is find a way of bringing the bridging the tension between these. How do you how do you bridge the powerful Jesus and the suffering Jesus, and and how does that work? And mm-hmm. I try and do it through the lens of Roman political ideology, right? Um, Roman political thought, and then put that against the background of what's going on with Vespasian and Mark actually responding to propaganda that's coming from Vespasian, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I go with it. Should I stop there and see if you have questions? Uh, no, yeah, keep going. Keep going. Okay, keep rolling. All right. Um, yeah, no, yeah, go with what you just said, the the Roman okay. political and ideology. So what I yep. do, um, 
many people have seen the 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 central section of Mark, which really um, begins. I would say most would say it begins with Jesus's first healing of a blind man um, in uh, Mark chapter, the end of Mark chapter eight, um, and then kind of concludes with Jesus's healing of another blind man. Right? It's this central section bookended by two healings of blind men. Um, and a major theme of that section is 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 basically seeing and understanding Jesus. Like, and his disciples they get that. So that it the it, what's really interesting is for the first half of the gospel, um, the disciples don't get it. They're dumb, right? They they, mm. they 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 don't get the Jesus. They don't get his identity. They 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 follow, but they over and over again they're making mistakes. In fact, it's exaggerated in Mark in a way that is not exaggerated in Matthew and Luke, um, and definitely mm-hmm. not in John. So it seems like this kind of literary thing where Mark is really emphasizing their blindness, um, even comparing their blindness to that of the Pharisees when you get to uh, Mark chapter 8. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, at the end of Mark chapter 8, at Caesarea Philippi, they see, right? Peter sees, he he sees Jesus. But what really is going on here is he sees, but he doesn't fully see. And it's a pretty Mm -hmm. creative thing Mark's doing with the narrative where he kind of compares Peter, I think, to the blind man that, that, that sees in two phases, right? Um, Jesus heals a blind man uh, with 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 spit, right? He heals a blind man with spit, um, and then he only partially sees, and he needs a second act of healing to fully see. And then you go into the next narrative where Peter all of a sudden sees Jesus, right? Peter was blind, but now he sees. But then you realize when Peter uh, rebukes Jesus after Jesus predicts that he's going to suffer and die, he gets rebuked and identified with Satan, get behind me, Satan, right? So you, what the reader recognizes is, wow, Peter's a lot like this blind man, right? Peter mm. Peter sees, but he only partially sees. He gets that Jesus is the Messiah, but Peter doesn't get the significance of the Messiah Jesus will be, right? Mm. And so you get this central section where it's really introducing Jesus is trying to get his disciples, but really his readers, Mark's readers, Mark's trying to get his readers to see that to see Jesus fully, you can't just see his power. You also have to see his suffering, right? Does that mm. make sense? This kind of yeah. central section where it's doing that. And I think Mark brilliantly draws on Roman um, political ideology to blend power and suffering, right? To bring mm. power and suffering together and to make them make sense. And so I take what is recognized, that central section I described, that's recognized by most Markan scholars today, that this is, Mark's doing something literarily. But what I try and do is I say, okay, well, let's take what Mark's doing literarily and the and the power and the suffering he's bringing together and see how this central section might be marrying the two um, mm. for the reader, right? Instead of saying, how might Mark be submitting power to suffering? How might Mark be bringing the two together so they make sense for the reader? And okay, so I got to give you a little bit of, uh, uh, of uh, again, a Roman background on yeah. Roman political ideology. Um, the uh, I think most people, when we think of Roman emperors, we think in terms of uh, of an autocrat. We think in terms of a dictator, a king, a monarch, etc. Those are all terms we would use, and we'd think, okay, well. Uh, the Roman emperor is basically an absolute authority over everyone, and this is how it'd be recognized, just like a king. But that's not accurate, right? That's not the way Romans would view their rulers, at least not in the first century, okay? Before Rome is a em- em- empire, well, before it's an empire ruled by an emperor, essentially, it's a republic, right? Hmm. And... Um, It has a long Republican history, and in that long Republican history, deeply ingrained in the memory of the origins of the Republican history is the rejection of tyrants, 
right? The rejection, they had kings before. They rejected mm. their kings, right? Because their kings were tyrannical. They're the, especially the last one was tyrannical. Um, and so they reject they reject these these having a king, and they have a republic, which is really mm. organized in a way to keep any individual from having absolute power for any individual being a tyrant, right? So they really work hard to keep, I mean, they have uh, what we might, what, you know, we have a president, which is head of the executive branch of government, but, but, but the Romans um, have two people that share that power, right? You have to share. So instead of what the, we have one president, they have two consuls. And instead of them being in power for four years, they're in power for one year, right? And mm-hmm. they have to work with the Senate that pass laws. And so it, it's a system that really keeps power from falling in the hands of one person. But over time, people learn how to game the system. They learn how to um, use Republican powers and um, use the people and use their wealth to kind of develop power that might give them kind of absolute power over Rome. Uh, the bet, I mean, this, this, the best example probably culminates in, um, you have number, by the way, you have a number of people that, that, that do this. Um, Pompey would be an example. Um, Solo would be an example. There's a number of them, but Julius Caesar is our best example, right? Julius Caesar, um, basically, um, with his power takes over Rome, military power takes over Rome and marches into Rome and declares himself dictator, uh, for life in Rome. Um, Mm -hmm. And we know the story of Julius Caesar. It doesn't go well. The Senate uh, plots and assassinates him. And the reason, and all these senators have plot and assassinated him, they think they're liberating Rome from tyranny, right? I think they're liberating Rome from a tyrant. Um, they are the uh, the liberators. Um, and, and many people would have seen it that way. Um, but then you have Julius Caesar's funeral and you read his will. And it turns out that he left a massive fortune to the people of Rome. And all of a sudden, the will of the people turns away from the liberators, right? And it turns towards Julius Caesar and someone like uh, Mark Antony and Octavian, who will become Augustus. They use the will. They use this to go after the liberators. Um, and essentially, you know, so their, their idea is we, we go after the liberators and then and then they share power. And then eventually mm-hmm. they fight with one another. And you get to a point where Octavian defeats Mark Antony and Octavian has essentially absolute power in Rome, right? Um, he could be exactly what Julius Caesar was, but he takes a different strategy, right? He takes a different approach and, and scholars recar- uh, refer to his rep- uh, approach as recusatio, which is, uh, recusing yourself of power. So the Senate comes to, to, uh, to Augustus and offers him these excessive honors that go past Republican sensibilities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, re- he, he declines them. He, he, or he resists them. His, he takes on a posture of no, 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 no. Don't give that to me. Don't give that to me. And so um, he he is able in his. It's called his resgeste. It's his is is basically at the end of his life. He has this big uh, this document that discusses all the things he's accomplished. And and one of the things he claims is that he never ruled by official authority, right? Uh, but that he ruled by the will of the people. That the people called for his help. And he ruled by his octoritas, right? This this idea mm. that's reverence that people had for him. And so he rules on behalf of the people with that. Um, he would hold official offices, but he only holds the consul occasionally. He's a consul occasionally, um, not always. He's not mm. dictator for life. He refuses all these kind of things that could... He learned, he learned from Julius Caesar, right? You know, you go that route, you might get stabbed to death by the Senate. So you take on this different approach. You present yourself as first among equals, um, the emperor is princeps, right? He's, he's a prince. He's the first among equals. He's not a king. 
He's not a tyrant. He's, he doesn't do that. He, he follows the laws. Um, uh, and my book talks about this. It talks about this political ideology. Um, and, and, and while he has power over the provinces is Imperator in Rome, he is presents, although, although he has all the power in the world and can do anything he wants in Rome, he presents himself as not having that. Right. Hmm. And appearances matter and it works. And he lasts for a really long time. And he sets a precedent for what later emperors will do. And good emperors will follow his precedent. Good emperors will sacrifice um, uh, for the people. Good emperors will serve the people. Good emperors will not exalt themselves over the people. Um, this is the this is the the way. Um, Nero, bad emperor, he does it the opposite way, right? Caligula, bad emperor, he does it the opposite way. And he's remember and they're remembered poorly by Roman historians because they do this. Domitian, same thing. Mm. But um, later emperors, Tiberius, uh, you know, uh, Claudius. Um, they, they, they do it the right way. Vespasian models Augustus, right? Does it the Augustan way. So anyway, uh, there's, this in, there's this interesting text. Uh, it's a great text. It's in the book. I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's from Seneca. And Seneca was a mentor of, of Nero before he went crazy and killed Seneca and killed his mom and other people. Uh, but, but he was a mentor, and he, and he writes uh, in, his, in his book on benefactions. And there's this place where he's talking about... Um, why the gods would allow somebody like Caligula to be the emperor? Like, why would they let this person be the emperor? Um, mm -hmm. And he says the reason is because of those who came before him, because of the model set by basically Augustus and Tiberius. And he talks about these people. Here's what he says about it. He says that they, I'm not getting the words exactly right, but he says that these people who passed their lives as ordinary or common or private citizens of the empire, right? Like no historian describes Augustus that way, but that's how Seneca describes him because of the way Augustus presents himself, right? Um, and then he goes on to talk about these people who fled from glory, um, who who sacrificed their own interests for the interests of the state, um, who instead of uh, instead of uh, conquering were willing to be conquered for the sake of the state, right? Mm. And the whole idea is that instead of promoting their own agenda and their own self and their own glory for you know, to, to rule over Rome, they submitted themselves to the state and the good of the state, right? So you have these servant emperors, right? Mm. So with that all in mind, you go to Mark chapter 10, uh, Mark 10, 42. In fact, I'm, I'm going to, hold on, I'm going to get the text in front of me really quickly so I can, so I can read yeah. it. Uh, so with that, that, that becomes Roman, imper Roman imperial or political ideology, right? Um, this idea that the good emperor doesn't exalt himself, the good emperor doesn't make himself uh, the, the, the tyrant ruler over everyone. He hmm. subordinates himself to the state. He sacrifices his interests for the interests of the state. That's the good Roman emperor, right? Hmm. This becomes the pattern that's followed. All right. Well, Mark, you have Jesus and Mark at the end, at the very end of this central section where Mark's trying to get people to see Jesus clearly, right? You see Jesus not just as powerful, but you also see him as this, this one who gives his life, right? And sacrifices, serves, etc. Um, it's just, it comes right after James and John have asked Jesus to sit at his right and his left, right? So they've, they've received their uh, proper rebuking, essentially, and, and, and hmm. pointed out to be, uh, again, blind and not seeing clearly. In verse 42, it says, So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those who they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, right? So he's drawing on this Roman um, language of tyranny and hmm. 
And and really, I think Mark's Roman readers would resonate with this and say, yeah, our rulers have been, and the latest ruler was Nero, and he was a tyrant, right? So he's drawing on this language of, I think, Mark's drawing on this language of Roman tyranny um, and, and people resonating and calling to mind, hey, our political ideology rejects that. And by the way, Jesus is saying something that sounds a lot like our Roman political ideology. Does that make sense? Mm. So what Jesus mm-hmm. is saying in Mark 40, uh, 10, 42 is actually something consistent with what Romans would think, right? We reject tyrants. We shouldn't be tyrants. That's not good. And then he says, but it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And I would say again, Mark isn't having Jesus talk about something that would be alien to his Roman readers. He's saying something that would actually make sense to his Roman readers, mm. right? Um and then he says, whoever wishes to be first among you, and it's important to remember that the Roman emperor was first among equals, so whoever wishes to be the first must be the slave of all. Again, I think this is drawing on, and maybe is an extreme version to some extent, because Roman emperors would never identify themselves as slaves, but, right. but this kind of extreme version of Roman political ideology, and then ends by saying, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That sounds pretty similar to Seneca when he says that the uh, emperor, these good emperors desired to what? To be conquered uh, rather than to conquer for the sake mm. of serving the interests of the state, right? A sim- similar kind of thing. And so I think Mark has crafted these words of Jesus uh, to draw on Roman political ideology. And what he's trying to point out is that Jesus's uh, death, um, I think he's it, Jesus's death fits with his power, right? Uh, the powerful emperors of Rome, the ones that were put in position to rule the world, what did they do or what were they expected to do? They were expected to serve. And he presents Jesus as doing just that, right? Jesus is actually responding or doing what uh, following Roman political ideology. In fact, I would say, Mark's pointing out that he does it better than the emperors themselves, right? No no Roman emperor uh, actually ever gave their life, right? They played the game. They engaged in recusatio. But Jesus actually gives his life as a ransom for his people, right? Mm. He gives his life. And so I argue in, in, uh, in the book, I think I say this, I think the wording's there, but it might be in the article I wrote that's similar to this, uh, um, that, that in this, Jesus out-Caesars Caesar, right? Jesus out-Caesars Caesar in Rome's own political ideology. And I think what it does is it takes, so, so this is how Mark marries together power and suffering, right? The mm. powerful world ruler Jesus outdoes even Rome's political sensibilities, right? He, he, he outdoes them at their own game. He out Caesar Caesar. Um, and I also think what Mark does here is he takes what... So one thing I've argued, let me go back to Mark responding to Vespasian's propaganda. I've argued also that throughout the first half of Mark, where Mark's presenting Jesus as power, 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 mm-hmm. he often does so in terms or, or in ways that counter things Vespasian has done, Right. Vespasian healed people. What does Jesus do? He heals people. In fact, he matches the healings that Vespasian performed. We could talk about that as well. He matches Hmm. and surpasses. Um, He commands legions of demons, right? Uh, Mark 5 in the Garrison Demoniac, where where there's this legion of demons that Jesus defeats. I think there's something Roman Imperial going on that uh, uh, kind of the symbolic Jesus greater than Vespasian going on there. But again, there's more to say, but 
Jesus gives food twice. He, he feeds people. Well, what does Asian do? He fed people. So I think Mark is throughout these chapters showing Jesus is incredibly powerful. In fact, he's more powerful than Vespasian. And I argue that the first eight chapters of Mark, you're getting this kind of counter resume, right? Vespasian's resume is being countered by Jesus's resume. And one by one, Mark's just knocking off Vespasian's impressive accomplishments and saying, yeah, 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 Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus mm. is better. And then the one glaring thing that's going to be hard to overcome on Jesus's resume is the fact that he dies on a cross, right? I mean, he's crucified mm. by a Roman governor. That's a pretty glaring weakness. But what does Mark do in chapter 10? He takes the weakness, recontextualizes it in terms of Roman political ideology, and then all of a sudden the weakness turns into a strength, right? Jesus is even better at the Roman political game than Vespasian is. And so even there, Jesus is better than Vespasian. And so I hmm. see that Mark, his Christology, all of this is a way of pastorally responding um, to a church that is in anxiety over this new emperor and the possibility of his claims, could they be true, etc. And Mark's responding with a resounding, absolutely not, not true. Jesus is greater than Vespasian. Jesus is true son of God. Jesus is more powerful, etc., 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 right? Mm. And I think it's a thoroughgoing response that, that, and in that response, Mark takes power and shows how it fits with suffering um, mm. and does it in, I think, a brilliant and clever way. So mm. how's that? Amen. No, that that, that helped. That, no, that 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 was beautiful. Um, okay, good, good. Yeah, because there's definitely a, an a, apologetic concern, even in in your writing. You 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 were very clear that he was Mark was trying to refute, you know, the emperor. So that's very interesting. This apologetic concern, I, and I, I'm sure listeners have probably never considered the Gospel of Mark as an apologetic concern for the the original readers. Yeah, yeah, very few do. Um, but when again, it's all it, it, context makes a huge difference. Like what setting right. are you putting it in, right? If you put it mm. in this setting, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and it's it's this kind of pastoral, yeah, pastoral apologetic um, defense of the faith. Yeah, trying to convince these. And another thing, convince these uh, these readers not to abandon their faith. Mm. And I think. It really also, I point out this as well, and people have often pointed out, you get the disciples, these blind disciples, Mark emphasizes their, uh, emphasizes them as being blind and not seeing. Well, who's Mark writing to? Hmm. He's writing to disciples who are uh, appearing to be blind, right? They're wavering in their faith. They're, they're not sure. In fact, it's interesting. The, the disciples, I've, I've argued, are ambivalent characters, right? They're, they, they follow Jesus, so they're there, but while they're following, they're not seeing, they're not getting. Mark even compares them to the blind Pharisees and seems like he, he questions them and says, are you really, basically, are you really insiders or are you outsiders? And I think that's a challenge. The disciples throughout Mark's gospel are are, are put in front of Mark's readers asking them the same question, right? Are, mm. are you, are you faithful? Are you seeing clearly? Are you getting Jesus's death and his resurrection as a part of who he is as Messiah? Or are you blind? Are you you know, are you are you the foolish disciples in the text, or are you disciples mm. who see clearly? Um, mm. So Mark, again, on so many levels, I think is brilliantly responding to the situation of his readers. Yeah, yeah. So with our our remaining time, I'd like to talk about your the appendix of the book. Yeah, I think yeah, it's sure. Important that what you call Yahweh's Christology. Yeah, um, Yahweh. Just... I would call it Yahweh Christology. Yeah, not oh, not sorry. possessive. Yahweh. Yahweh Christology. Yeah. 
Yahweh Christology. I apologize. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, this is is fun. Uh, so that that little appendix that I wrote, I wrote um, because I'd uh, interacted with a few sources, and I thought, okay, well, I you know, I've written it on Mark's Christology, and haven't had a, said a single thing about the implications of Jesus or in relation to the God of Israel, right? It's mm. it's largely been Christology as Mark's presented it in the narrative. Um, and so I'd read a little bit about this and uh, begin discussions with a friend of mine, uh, David Wilhite. He is a, a professor of uh, patristics at Truth Theological Seminary at, uh, at Baylor University. Yeah, I'm actually interviewing him in a, in a few weeks. Oh, you, you are? Really? About yeah. what? Athanasius. Athanasius? Oh, really? Okay. Well, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's one of my closest friends, and he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, and mm. we're working, we actually currently are working on a, a three-book project with with Fortress Academic, Fortress Lexington, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it was in the initial discussions of those that I put together this appendix, right? Um, but since then, I uh, it, it has expanded significantly. I mean, this three book project is basically uh, working off of of that, that. What you read as the appendix is kind of a, a just a little seed in a much larger project, and so essentially. Um, there have been a number of scholars that, in reading Mark, have tried to say if you or if you're paying attention to Mark closely, Mark seems to be uh, subtly, implicitly claiming that Jesus is the God of Israel. Right? And there's a number of places you hmm. can see this. Um, hmm. The uh, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, right? I mean, you go to. In fact, let me turn there. Um. Mark, at the beginning, uh, you have the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God, and then a citation from Isaiah, right? It says, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, right? And in this in this citation, there's actually a change in the text. Um, the original uh, text would say, it says, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of me who will prepare your way. And so Mark has made a slight change from me to you, which seems to create distance between the God who is sending and the one who is sent. But in, Hmm. but in, uh, in the text that's being cited or in, uh, um, in the text that's being cited, the one who is sending is the one who is, uh, uh, sending my messenger ahead of, is the one who the messengers are going ahead of, right? So there it looks like, oh, well, Mark seems to be creating a distinction between the God of Israel and Jesus. Right, mm-hmm. but then the next text says the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, "Prepare the way of the Lord," and that Lord is the Yahweh of Israel, making His paths straight. Mm. Right? Well, who's in Mark? Who's the voice crying out in the wilderness? John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist, and who's yeah. he preparing the way for? Jesus, huh? Jesus, right? And so here's there's this subtle connection where it looks like. Jesus is being identified with the Lord of this text, mm-hmm. who is the Yahweh of Israel. So you have this ambiguity mm. in there where Lord in the first passage seems like there's a distance between Yahweh, but then Jesus seems to be identified um, with that Lord there. And so people will say implicitly, it looks like Mark might be saying Jesus is Yahweh. Um, another interesting, I mean, probably the most compelling to me is uh, the, the the episode in which um, the episode in which Jesus is walking on water. Right, uh, he comes. The disciples are are out. He he was he's been praying up on the mountain. He comes down from the mountain, uh, and 
and he comes walking on the water, right? They're straining uh, against the against the waves, and he comes walking out on the water. Um, and so there's a number of little details in that that if you are familiar, if you're a Jew familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, mm-hmm. I think Mark is slapping you in the face with Jesus's the Yahweh of Israel, right? So the first thing mm-hmm. you have is this description. Um, in fact, I'll turn there so I can yeah. hold on one second. Um, you have, uh, let's see, um, it says, uh, when he saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came toward them early in the morning, walking on the sea. Hmm. Now, if you go to Job, oh, I think it's 9-8. I think it's 9-8. Uh, I'm going off memory here. I'm pretty sure I'm right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's 9-8. Uh, it says there, talking about Yahweh, says, who alone, walk? who alone, only Yahweh, who alone walks on the waves of the sea, right? Um, and in the Septuagint, the wording is almost identical to what, to what Mark is doing here, right? So where Job mm. is saying only Yahweh walks on the waves of the sea, here Jesus is what? Walking mm. on the waves of the sea, right? Okay, so if you just had that, and then somebody might say, okay, well, it looks like maybe Jesus is just kind of doing what Yahweh does or something like that. But again, remember, only Yahweh walks on the waves of the sea, then you get this weird verse or weird line. It's in the same mm-hmm. verse, but it says he intended to pass them by, which is this weird detail, right? Jesus walks out there and it says he intended to pass them by. Like, like Jesus wasn't planning on helping. He just, he intended to pass them by. When you read Matthew, Matthew takes that line out. Matthew takes out, he intended to pass them by. The idea is Jesus comes to them to help them. But in Mark, he has this, he intended to pass them by. Well, the interesting thing is this passing by language is language that is ingrained in the two most important theophany stories in the Old Testament. One Mm. is Yahweh appearing to Moses on Mount Sinai. And this is the story, the episode where where Moses asked to see God's glory, right? And what does God say? He's not going to let him see his glory. If he sees his glory, he'll die. So what does he do? He puts him in the cleft of the rock and says, I will pass by you Mm. and allow you to see me from behind, right? And in that episode, I think it's within, I don't know, it's maybe within 10 verses, four, I think it's four or five times, right, four times, um, God says, and I will pass by you, and I will pass by you, and when I pass by you, right, says mm. it four times. And in the Septuagint, uh, the Greek text, or the Greek word is the exact same word that Mark uses here, Jesus intended to pass by. And then the second most significant uh, story, uh, theophany story, is mm-hmm. the story of Elijah on Mount Horeb, right? Elijah's on Mount Horeb, and um, the word of the Lord comes and says, come out onto the edge of the cliff of the mountain or edge of the mountain, because the Lord, Yahweh, is going to what? He's going to pass by you, right? The mm. Lord is going to pass by. So in both stories, passing by is, is theophanic language. It's, 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 it's the language of theophany. It's the language of Yahweh appearing and revealing himself. And so what I would say is here you have Jesus walking on the sea and his intention is to pass by them to what? To, to reveal himself. So, and some people will say, well, Jesus is here. Jesus is, uh, he's just acting like Yahweh. Well, he's acting like Yahweh and Yahweh's form of self revelation, right? Of himself. Mm-hmm. So how could you say Jesus, it, it seems to me like it's hard to make that case because the action that Jesus is engaged in, if he's acting like Yahweh, is the act of Yahweh revealing himself to people, right? Uh, which would seem to think that Jesus is 
revealing himself as Yahweh did or Jesus is Yahweh. Now, the mm-hmm. next thing that's interesting, you keep going. Um, let's see. It says, uh, verse 50, for they saw, they saw him, they cry out, and they say, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately spoke to them and say, said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Well, the, the English is, betrays us a little bit here, right? Um, because uh, there is the take heart, but what Jesus, in Greek, Jesus says, ego eni, right? Ego eni, I am, is what he says. Um, mm. And I am is part of what Yahweh says to Moses when Moses asks, who should I say is sending me? And in, and mm-hmm. in Greek, uh, he says, ego eni, ha on, I think. I am the one who is, right? I am the one who is. I am, ego eni. Um, and so part of Yahweh's self-revelation to Moses is what Jesus says here to the disciples, ego and me. And also hmm. some would point out and say, well, it's only part. It's not necessarily Jesus is using the divine name or he's identifying himself with, with Moses. Uh, you know, they'll say, he didn't say ego and me ha'on. Um, and they'll say, this isn't really the same thing. But here's the thing. When you get into the prophets, right? You get into Ezekiel, you get into Isaiah regularly. Yahweh's way of identifying himself or referring him to himself is ego a me in the Septuagint. I am. Sometimes it's just I am, I am. Ego a me, ego a me. Um, hmm. And he's and, and then they'll even say, uh, the, I think it's, oh, it's a Persian king. It might be Nebuchadnezzar. I forget exactly. But, but, but that king said, ego a me, right? That king hmm. said, I am. And Yahweh comes back and says, no, ego and me, I am, right? Mm. So it becomes this very prevalent way in the Old Testament for Yahweh to identify himself. And here Jesus says it. So Jesus walks on water like Yahweh. Jesus intends to pass by, which is similar to Yahweh's act of self-revelation. And then Jesus, the first thing he says to his disciples includes, ego a me, I am, I think is... If you're paying attention, I think this is referring to Jesus is the Yahweh of Israel. I mean, it's using that this this Yahweh's way of referring to himself. Um, and yeah. then says, do not be afraid, right? This is often language when Yahweh appears to calm the anxieties of those who are there. That's often com- common as well. Now, another really interesting thing is when we go back to the Theophany episode of Moses, right? The Theophany episode where Moses, um, uh, God is going to pass by Moses, right? Put him in the cleft of the rock and pass him by. Yeah. Um, he says, what he says is, I will pa- pass by and speak my name, right? Hmm. So Yahweh is passing by Moses, and while he passes by, he speaks his name. Well, what is Jesus doing here? As he is intending to pass by, what does he speak? He speaks hmm. to his disciples, ego in me, right? And Interesting. so- so what I would argue, I mean, this is what I have argued and I will continue mm-hmm. to argue, I think, for the reader that knows the Septuagint, Mark is is slapping him in the face with Jesus is the Yahweh of Israel, right? Um, mm. And there's more. There's a number of things. And, and I point out a number of the arguments in the book and you can, and, and, and it's not incredibly thorough, but um, what's, and so what I argue there is, yes, I agree with these scholars that are saying there's this implicit Yahweh Christology, meaning the Christ, Yahweh, the Christ is the Yahweh of Israel, right? That's the argument. The Mark is presenting Jesus as the Yahweh of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I argue in the book, that the end of that chapter, that it's implicit. But I've moved on from that where I think Mark is explicit. I think Mark mm. is explicitly, for the readers who are familiar with the uh, with the Second Temple Judea, I mean, I think Mark is, is, is intentionally presenting Jesus as the Yahweh of Israel. 
Um, and I don't think, and I make this distinction, I don't think it's Mark's mission to make a case for Jesus Yahweh. I just think it's in the text because it is the pervasive belief of his audience, right? It's mm. not like Mark is saying, I'm setting out to do this, show you Jesus Yahweh. No, he's just telling you the Jesus story, trying to respond to Vespasian, but he can't help but throughout the Jesus story, there's all these traditions where Jesus is the Yahweh of Israel, right? It's, just, it's part of the fabric of the narrative. It can't be separated out. Um, so it's interesting. If you're interested in this conversation, especially about Mark and his Christology, there's a new book. I It's uh, um, it's by Zondervan. Um, and now, can you, can you pause for a second? I just, it's, yeah, it's, no, it's Christology fine. of Mark's Gospel, Four Views, or something like that. I can always sure. get it wrong, whether it's Mark's Christology, Four Views, the Christology of Mark's Gospel, Four Views. But the contributors are myself, Larry mm-hmm. Hurtado, uh, uh, the... Um, the late Larry Hurtado and Daniel Kirk and Sandra Hubenthal. And so it is the way it works is everybody writes their own original essay. Everybody then responds to everybody's essay. And then each person gets to do a rejoinder to the responses. Right. Mm. And so if you're interested in this, I write my entire piece is arguing for this idea that Jesus is the Yahweh of Israel in Mark's gospel. It's certainly mm. a different take than the other three of them have. Um, and so if you're interested in that discussion, I, I lay out the evidence, I think, very clearly. Um, and then that is a, a basically a, a snapshot of what me and David Wilhite are working on or arguing. Hmm. We're, we're starting with a book that deals with Second Temple Judaism and finding the roots of Jesus as Yahweh in Second Temple Judaism, um, which is complicated. I won't get into that now. Um, <laughs> and then going to the first book deals with that. Then we take that, the results of that, and we apply it to the New Testament. And so hmm. we try and demonstrate how Jesus is the Yahweh of Israel for many of the New Testament authors. Um, not all, but many. Um, mm-hmm. And that we can demonstrate, we think many. And then the mm. third book is going into the second, third, fourth, fifth century, all the way to Nicaea, and to see how this early belief in Jesus as Yahweh then, um, I guess, fragments and looks different ways in the early centuries of the church. Interesting. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the major, the overarching project, um, but uh, so, so that little appendix is exploding yeah. into something much larger. Um, that really goes back to a conversation, a debate between me and David Wilhite back, I don't know, it was over 10 years ago that finally is evolving into uh, some some sort of published work. But uh, yeah, mm. questions about What's that? Well, when does it come out or is it already mm. out, that project? Nothing, it's out. Well, the book on the book on Mark and the Four Views, that's already out. That came out uh, maybe a year ago or so. Okay, uh, I'll put that you in can, the show notes then. Yeah. yeah, you can certainly engage that book. Uh, it, and it's it's a... I, it was a really enjoyable to kind of have this dialogue back and forth with with these with with excellent and very excellent scholars. I was honored to be be included yeah. in, in the group. Um, but then uh, our first, we, we hope to finish the first volume of this this project. Um, we hope to finish it. I, I want to say early summer, and then you know probably going to take a, a several months, six or I guess six or so months to actually come out in print. Maybe maybe next. Yeah, maybe late, late this year, and might you might sure. be able to see it in print, depending on if we're able to make the progress we want to make. Might be, yeah. might be uh, 2024 where you see it. Um, but that's the first book, and then we hope in the next couple of years we'll get out the second book. Um, that's the plan. But it's coming. It's coming. Sure. No, it's important work because I mean, oh, in, in younger generations right now, like there's you know TikTok theologians and Instagram theologians. 
they're questioning the divinity of Jesus left and right. It's it's a it's a an old well, argument, but I think it's resurfacing for whatever reason. Uh, maybe no. with, you know progressive Christianity or something like that. I don't know why it's happening, but I I appreciate. I'm really excited for your work. I think it's important. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. Um, uh, it's it's really enjoyable. I'm 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 glad we're getting the opportunity to do it. Um, yeah. And I think it's not only. I think it definitely. I mean, this obviously it's an academic debate. There's this kind of history of how do we. If Jesus, I mean, so you have some that would argue that Jesus was never, you know, the earliest Christians didn't believe Jesus was God, right? That the, the earliest Jewish Christians thought he was just the Messiah, and then Gentile Christianity kind of it brings in this divinity, and somehow it gets worked into Jewish monotheism some way. Um, then you have your, your a newer movement that responds to that. Um, your Larry Hurtados, your Richard Bockhams, and they they make an important step and say, no, you can get to a divine Jesus through Judaism, um, but. But again, they they, uh, they 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 get close to Jesus is the God of Israel, but they don't say that, right? They want to say, mm. well, Jesus kind of identified with the God of Israel, or Jesus is worshipped with the God of Israel, or brought in, and so Jesus kind of is Jesus is kind of brought into the conversation. Jesus is the Johnny come lately in in the God with the God of Israel, right? Um, and what's really interesting about that is that, and but I think their work is incredibly important, and we build on their work. At, um, but what's really interesting is is Jews in the second, third, fourth, fifth century, or not Jews, Christians in the second, third, fourth, fifth century. If mm-hmm. you ask them who is the primary actor in the Old Testament, if you ask if you ask most Christians today that, or most scholars today, they'll say, well, Christ, those Christians, or they would say the Father is is the primary actor in the Old Testament, right? I mean, this is the God of Israel and. But if you ask most Christians in the second, third, fourth, and fifth century, their answer to that question is is the pre-incarnate son, right? Mm. The pre-incarnate son, Jesus, is who appears to Moses on the, at the burning bush. The pre-incarnate son, Jesus, right. who's appeared to Abraham, is the one who appears to Abraham, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so well, we're, this is actually where the, it, all, the, it all starts with David Willite saying, well, this is what second and third century Christians thought. How did they get there? And so we then work backwards and say, we think the New Testament authors were saying the same thing. We think mm. met most of the New Testament authors, or many of the New Testament authors, were saying Jesus is the Yahweh of Israel that appears to Moses. That's who Jesus is. Um, hmm. And then we go back to Second Temple Judaism and say we think they even thought in terms of um, uh, possibly the Messiah being the Yahweh of Israel. But understanding almost uh, uh, the argument we're, the argument we're making is essentially that Second Temple Judaism, at least many Second Temple Jews, inherently understood the God of Israel in Binitarian terms, right? They already understood the God of Israel mm. in Binitarian terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, uh, we think there's lots of evidence for this. Um, but yeah. anyway, that's the argument. And so what we try to do is draw a line of, tr- line of continuity from Second Temple Judaism, pre-Jesus, all the way through the New Testament, to the second century and make the case that um hey that what second century second century christians didn't make this up this actually has roots in judaism comes through judaism all the way through the new testament and they believe it because it's what they read in the new testament and what they understood mm. in the new testament and what the yeah. earliest christians thought so that's basically our, our the scope of our project mm. well i'm excited for it i i hope to uh get my hands on it as soon as possible Absolutely, and That's if you ever stuff. want, hey, listen, when if the time comes and you want to chat about it, we would we would love to. We would we could have yeah. we, both me and David on together. We'd love to do it do it together. That that'd be uh, fantastic. Well, I, I do got to wrap up here. No um, problem. Uh, no so problem. I just, let, let me let. Oh, sorry. 
Oh, go ahead. No, I just want to say thank you. I, it's always uh, I'm honored to to be able to discuss this stuff and uh, be be asked to. And so, thank you for the time and thank you for your interest. And no, thank, no, thank you for making this available to people. Yeah, that's that's the the hope of this this uh, series on Christology is just to get information out that you know you don't have to go to seminary to get introduced to this information. I think people should get more education, but that's just me. <laughs> I, I I agree a hundred percent, a hundred percent. We need to make this stuff as available to people in the church as we can, and Amen. people want it. That's the thing. We gotta, yep. gotta find a way to get it to them. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again for your your work and your ministry, uh, and, and just your witness and your passion. Just talking to you. Oh, thank you very much. It's, 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 uh, I'm honored to be able to get to do it. You've just listened to another episode of Young and Sanctified. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.